0: Hello and welcome to the Road to ADAPEC series by Energy Voice, brought to you by DMG Events. Some of the world's greatest minds from energy markets around the world will gather in Abu Dhabi for Adipec 2022 from the 31st of October to the 3rd of November to address the most pressing global energy and climate challenges we face today. With attendees from over 160 countries and featuring more than 28 dedicated country pavilions this year, ADAPEC is set to be the most inclusive and international energy platform, tackling critical issues around the sustainability, affordability and security of energy. With record global participation, ADAPEC 2022 provides the thought leadership that will provide a pathway to successfully navigate a progressive and pragmatic energy transition. ADAPEC 2022 will reinforce Abu Dhabi and the UAE's status as a unifying and convening power at the center of the global dialogue on the future of energy. I'm Ed Reed, an editor at Energy Voice, and I'm joined today by Praskovia Narvanja, CEO of the Ugandan National Oil Company, and Manfredi Kaltagirioni, head of the United Nations Environment Programme's Methane Emissions Observatory. This series is going to feature a number of interviews with the big thinkers of energy as we head towards ADAPEC. This episode aims to look at the role of a pragmatic and progressive energy industry. Over the last couple of years, as we've seen dramatic changes in sentiment around what energy means and how we relate to it, we've heard a lot about the energy transition. For some, this means a dramatic end to the hydrocarbon industry. No new fields, to paraphrase the IEA's influential Net Zero report from 2021, and a move to scale up renewable energy. Such a move, while appealing from a carbon emissions point of view, poses serious challenges, though, in how we continue to live our lives. And when the question is broadened to include how to provide electricity to those in, say, sub-Saharan Africa with no access to electricity at all, it becomes harder still. It's clear that wind and solar energy have become incredibly cost-competitive, and progress is also being made on hydrogen. However, virtually all forecasts continue to see demand for oil and gas stretching right through to 2050 and beyond changes are coming to how the world consumes energy. While Europe and North America make plans to phase out internal combustion engines, much of the world is still eager to embrace such possibilities. And just as important as thinking about the energy choices we're faced with, I think it's also important to consider who has the capacity to take those choices. And I think this is going to be one of those increasing challenges we're going to see with ESG. That focus on emissions alone runs the risk of ignoring social and governance aspects. Fortunately, my esteemed guests are here to guide us forwards and set the energy world to rights. Proskovia, I'm gonna start with you. What do you think makes an energy transition pragmatic and progressive?
1: Thank you so much, Ed. Indeed, a very interesting conversation in the room today. Energy transition for me, from my perspective, can only be pragmatic and progressive if it recognises the world that the world needs access to energy. You've touched on a very fundamental point: 600 million in a million people in Sub-Saharan Africa still need access to energy. Yes, we recognize that we need to reduce emissions, but we also recognize that we need development. So we have to strike a compromise. We curb emissions, but not stop development. And we have to recognize that our industry can play a fundamental role in contributing to the solution rather than being a rest of the planet. Of course, this will involve um, investing in cleaner technologies, investing in transitional and greener methods, um, uh, different uh, types of energy, but without compromising the socioeconomic good. Now, of course, when you look at um, the approach to energy transition, it's been kind of taken in with an approach that is one size fits all. And from an African perspective, I believe this is not being pragmatic enough because we sit from different, you know, we sit in different positions. While the Western world is already up on the industrialization curve, Africa still needs to meet its um, energy needs because energy poverty is still um, very, uh, very paramount uh, for Africa. So in terms of pragmatic and progressiveness, we need to be deliberate to address the energy needs uh, for the communities, the energy needs for the 600 million people in Africa who have no access to energy yet we should also be pragmatic in a way not to deny the fact that we need to protect the environment and that whatever we do in our projects, we put the environmental considerations at the forefront of the planning.
0: Manfredi Proscovia you know, brought in a really interesting uh, point there around around that sort of energy access kind of question. Does that tie into that kind of uh, progressive and pragmatic way? Does it does it does it change how we think about the energy transition? Uh, first of all,
2: let thank, let me thank you for, for for the invitation to this podcast and and, and say hello to Proscovia. That is a it is a pleasure to to join in this conversation conversation. Uh, conversation. Pascal is absolutely right. Uh, It it is key uh, to ensure that that the transition is is done uh, in an equitable fashion and to make sure that uh, that there is access to to electricity and and to modern form of energies to to as many people in the world as as possible, obviously. Uh, It is also important to, to recognize that the effects of climate change are in a in a you know way, uh, being felt by those same people who have uh, who are living in, in in more vulnerable situation, and so they maybe not have access to to electricity or other form of energy. So we need to we need to consider obviously, as 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 you know all well know very well, uh, we need to consider both aspects, but without forgetting again that. The effect of climate change will be uh, will be felt disproportionately by by the same uh, vulnerable population that, that has uh, access
0: issues. And sticking with you, Manfred, I mean, we all agree, right, that that, that kind of question of energy access is is critical. And and so I think there is there is that sort of need, I suppose, you know, at least in the sort of you know short to medium term for kind of continued and, and perhaps growing access to hydrocarbons in some part of the world. But how should we do it in a way that allows us to, as you say, also kind of tackle this problem that you've identified of Climate change, of of the ways in which we're seeing, uh, you know, increased uh, temperatures, floods, natural disasters, and things like that. I mean, obviously, we we, we can all say this is a problem. How do we sort of square this circle?
2: Yeah, and then and that is the that is the issues that that all all of us in this community are grappling with. And uh, if if I had a firm answer, I you know I would have I would have sent it around to to leaders of the world uh, uh, already. Uh, so it's obviously. Uh, a very a very nuanced issue that that has several elements what what we know and what the emission gap report that the unap uh, uh, publishes yearly uh, is that we are far away from meeting the objectives that the science told us uh we need to meet in order to avoid the worst effect of climate change and um, and that also are the, the 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 targets that governments and and decision makers around the world have agreed on in in paris at, at cop uh, at cop 15 in in uh, in, in 2015 uh, and so the, the the objective of maintaining the temperature increase well below 2 degrees and and we aim to, to achieve the 1.2 to not uh, exceed the 1.5 degree average temperature temperature increase and so we do know that that in line with the plans and the pledges and and, and all the announcements uh, and policies that governments have put in place, we're still far away from from meeting the the right trajectory, uh, and that we need to accelerate efforts. Uh, I from from a UN perspective, it is clear that the that the heavy lifting. Uh, of this uh, effort needs to be done in developed countries. There are the countries where there are most, there are more mean from a, certainly from a financial point of view, but often also from a technological point of view, um, and that the the those uh, countries uh, and population both inside the the, the, the countries and, and globally. Uh, needs to be, you know, these these, inequ- these equity issues need to be need to be balanced with the need, with the imperative of of reducing meter emissions. Again, we have seen the effect of climate change on, on on our planet. We we have seen, you know, the devastating flooding in, in Pakistan, uh, the, the the fires that have been raging in, in most of the world over over the summer. Uh, lack of water in in other areas so we we are seeing an extremization of, of weather events and and it seems seems to me but but more importantly than me it seems to uh, to, to the climate expert to the, to the climate scientist that this has been an acceleration in uh, in the frequency of these extreme events at, at, at the level that, that is unprecedented in in human history uh, and so there is an imperative, of reduction of emission on the one side, and as, as you and Praskovia rightly know, that there is also an imperative of making sure that this transition happens in a way that is equitable, uh, both between countries and, and inside countries, uh, to make sure that the, the more weak or vulnerable communities can be can be protected.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, Proscovia, I mean, I think you know we, we can sort of talk about things in sort of you know general, but I suppose in Uganda you're clearly you're working on uh, on 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 a, on a big oil project, right? The sort of the Lake Alba development and the and the East African crude oil pipeline, and and obviously a lot of work's gone into trying to to, to make that I suppose as a sort of fair and equitable and, and sort of reducing carbon emissions as much as you can, but it still seems to be facing a lot of trouble. I mean, obviously there's you know there's there's, there's it feels like there's sort of a there's a there's a big protest movement against it, I mean, I keep on sort of seeing, you know, sort of reports and, you know, sort of criticisms of it. How do you try and make that case? I mean, looking at that sort of Lake Albert development, looking at at, at the efforts that I suppose you and and Total Energies and Scenic have gone into trying to to make that work. How do you feel that is uh, pragmatic or progressive?
1: Indeed, uh, the Lake Albert project has received uh, quite a level of pushback uh, because of the you know, the anticipated emissions. But um, I think for us, it's really about what interventions have been done to date to address the concerns. We respect uh, the fact that the environment needs to be protected, and there's no question about that. And before any project is sanctioned off in Uganda, it goes through a comprehensive environmental and social impact assessment. The project indeed went through an environmental social impact assessment that went through public disclosure. It's aligned with the IFC standards and the Equita principles for compensation and livelihood restoration and the technical designs for ECOP put into consideration um, the emissions. For example, along the pipeline route, we have about uh, six pumping stations and two pressure reduction stations, and most of these uh, stations are going to be uh, pumped uh, or powered by solar, which is quite uh, a good intervention for the project. The resettlement action planning as well, I think we can't execute a project without compensating people adequately, and that's really at the forefront of the planning. The standards, the contingency planning as well, should anything happen, have been put into consideration. So you can see that the environmental and uh, social considerations have been put at the front in the planning uh, for ECOP. But that being said, I think for us, we look uh, in development of these projects, we first look at what success looks like. And in Uganda's perspective, success is, you know, it's looking at the socioeconomic benefits that we are going to get out of these projects. If you eliminate ECOP, You're impacting on the upstream development, certainly, because they will have no evacuation of that crude to market. And in turn, you're also impacting on the refinery. Now, why do I focus on this? The reason is that when you see the socioeconomic benefits of these projects, you're talking about 164,000 jobs that are going to be created. You're talking about technology and skills transfer. You're talking about balance of payments close to 600 million US dollars per, uh, per year. You're talking about a net fiscal impact of close to 800 million U.S. dollars per year. You're talking about contribution to GDP in excess of so 3 billion per year. The numbers give you that uh, imperative to invest in these projects. But there is also one piece that maybe people don't recognize is the fact that we are trying to, um, to address the issue of energy poverty in Africa. Uh, look we've said 600 million people have no access to power. 120,000 hectares of land, of trees, are being cut annually, while only 70,000 hectares are being planted. That says, you know, a lot. So if we can address this energy poverty through interventions like LPG that is going to come out of the uh, the, the projects, you're addressing deforestation, and changing people's livelihoods to move away from biomass and cutting the trees to at least a cleaner form of energy. If the refinery is going to produce 240 metric tons of HFO, how do you convert that to fertilizer? And for us, the bigger picture is to be able to go through value addition and boost the agriculture. So if I can use the fertilizers to boost agriculture, remember Uganda is an agro-based uh, economy, then I will be improving the livelihoods and contributing to social economic uh, benefits for the project. So I think while there's been a pushback on ECOP, there's need to look at all the different projects in an integrated manner, because short of one, you're impacting the greater good that these projects are going to bring to the economy. I guess... The issue of energy transition will look different depending on the reference point. It's different from a world perspective. It's going to be different from Europe perspective. It's going to be different from an African perspective. It's going to be different from a Uganda perspective. And it's going to be different from a rural perspective. Because ask yourself, if someone is moving away from biomass to uh, to EV, what are you transitioning this person from? You're asking someone to stop cutting trees. Better move them to LPG. We have communities that have no access to transport. So if I can move a mother who is, you know, looking for a hospital facility using a diesel-powered vehicle. I would certainly do that because I'm contributing to um you know a livelihood compared to asking to stop you know the automotive industry that is powered by gasoline or diesel to move to e v so the reference points have to be totally different, and for us as Uganda, the reference point is to look at what success would look like for that rural person. For that child who has no access to power to put in an extra effort to read books, for that woman who is using biomass to cook using firewood, how do I improve her from that to something better? That's the way we look at um, the transition and what it should address. Should we enter into other spaces like solar, hydro, hydrogen? That's okay. I think we'll do all the efforts to, uh, to bring other forms into the energy mix. But we shouldn't shy away from the fact that we are not on the same industrialization curve. Solar is there, hydro is there, but it doesn't yet deliver some of the products that the oil and gas industry is able to deliver to propel African countries to achieve industrialization.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think this this is a good point at which we're going to take a break, uh, but we'll be back very shortly. Eddie Pick. The Abu Dhabi International Energy Exhibition and Conference.
2: The world's most influential gathering of the energy industry.
0: From the 31st of
2: October to the 3rd of November.
0: We, we can see the need to change, but I think there's also a question about how fast and, and, and how that manifests. I mean, Manfredi, obviously you sort of talked about 2030, which I think is... Not that far away. What, what do you think that we need to achieve by then in in terms of uh, that transition?
2: I mean, there are many things that can be done, but I, I'd like to increase the rate of of deployment of renewable energy in as 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 fast as possible, uh, as 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 broadly uh, in the world as possible to increase in in a in a less fancy. Uh, technology that is really key, for example, for for reducing energy generation, energy demand. That is energy efficiency. That is that is uh that is one of the first action that uh, that as governments think about the energy transition, they, they should they should invest on. Uh, and one specific, actually, for the oil and gas and industry in general, for the energy industry, that is the reduction of methane emissions that is associated with with the production, transportation, and distribution of gas uh, and the production of oil. Uh, methane is a short-lived climate pollutants. Uh, it means that it stays in the atmosphere uh, for a few decades, as opposed to the centuries uh, of, of CO2. Uh, and it is also much more powerful in, in heating, in, in trapping heat uh, compared to CO2, over 80 times more powerful than, than CO2 in, in doing that. And the combination of these two characteristics, the fact that it's highly capable of of trapping heat and and increasing global warming. And the fact that it stays in the atmosphere for short uh, means that acting on methane is the fastest action we can take to reduce the worst effect of climate change in in the short term. It's it's the the only way we have as a community to reduce the effect of climate change in our lifetime. If we take action between now and 2030, we could have uh, up to 0.3 degrees of avoided warming by the mid of the of the 2040 that is that is extremely fast in in climate terms right it's uh we shouldn't think of a of the climate system as a as a speedboat but rather as a super tanker just to stay on 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 message for the for the oil and gas industry so it actually takes many many miles to to make any any even small correction and, and methane, uh, in particular from the oil and gas industry, that is, is a sector where technology and finance are largely available and that, that is very used to, to projects, to project finance, to, to put forward multi-billion dollar projects uh, as, as part of the business model. Um, it, is, it is really an opportunity that, that we cannot miss and that it would be a very practical Yet ambitious uh, opportunity for the oil and gas industry to, in the short term, make an action that that, have, that can have strong climate benefits, uh, extremely important climate benefits, while allowing for for oil and gas to be, you know, to reduce as much as possible the uh, the some of the effects of the use of oil and gas uh, on the climate on the climate system. So. There is a real opportunity for for the oil and gas industry to to be leaders on 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 reducing methane emissions from 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 their operations. Uh, there is action that is happening at a different level uh, at company, government, international organization levels. At COP twenty six, we have seen one hundred and twenty two countries getting together and and, and announcing a, a global meet and pledge to reduce. Uh, Meta emissions by 30% across all sectors uh, by, by 2030. That is uh, the, you know, a very welcome leadership, uh, showing of leadership. But then who really controls emission in the oil and gas industry are the oil and gas companies. So they are the one, and in particular the asset managers... Are the one that have the agency to turn the, the the valve to make sure that it doesn't leak, or to close the tank, uh, or to make sure that the flare is always lit, or to design the the, the facility in a way that doesn't require flares at all. That is that, that is much better, so much of a better solution in in the first place, not only for climate but also for air quality uh, reasons. So there are there are actions in the short term that the that the oil and gas industry can take and and should take uh, from from our perspective. And there are then longer term plans that they should put forward to make sure that in the following decades, their economies uh, and, and their business model changes to transform more into energy companies rather than oil and gas companies, right? To provide services rather than a product. And uh, and 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 so the combination of short-term action and medium-term planning, so that this can become actions in in the next decade or so, it it's, it's really key.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and Proskovia, you know, you run one of these uh, these oil companies that Manfred is talking about. What can you see in terms of how uh, your company is 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 sort of making progress in terms of the transition? I mean, I think you you brought up that very interesting example of the uh, the, the the solar uh, panels for the Ecop uh, line, which. I I think is 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 a really interesting uh, move. But is is there anything else that that you can that you can see in your sort of ten year plan?
1: Yes, we have the plans. And I love the previous submission that we have to uh, take the opportunity today as leaders so that we show that we are part of the solution rather than being looked at as a major cause of the problem. So we must have uh, ambitions to net zero. And uh, for example, what we've committed to do as Uganda Cross Projects is to start on an action or climate action plan that is geared towards creating carbon sinks, through planting of trees, even before the projects are actually commissioned. So we anticipate what the emissions would look like and try to cut those emissions even before the projects are sanctioned. So it's one way uh, being proactive to create a carbon neutral environment even before uh, these projects are on board. But I want also to address myself to the fact that as a country, government has done interventions. For example, we have a zero flaring policy in Uganda. You can't flare unless it's only for emergency reasons. Then also the way in which the drilling uh, is going to be done, because we are dealing with an eco-sensitive environment, you can imagine 426 wells being drilled from 34 well pads. That's a, a big intervention. And uh, equally, 31 wells down south being drilled from three or four well pads. That's a big intervention, considering the fact that previously um, any developer would put up so many wells uh, to have um, a good capture of the, of the reservoir. So we continue to look for innovative ways uh, to curb these emissions We've um, also intervened using HDD well drilling below some of the critical or eco-sensitive area, horizontal deviated drilling, so that we do not impact on the environment uh, at all. And then even ECOP itself, it's buried all the way from Uganda to Tanzania. So there will be restoration and then the livelihood can, can continue above ground, save for the installations that I touched on. Uh, so, but but that's not enough. Certainly, we need to do more. We need to invest more in technology. And uh, interestingly, the oil and gas industry is one of those industries that has invested so much in research and development. And we believe we can create solutions by using the same research and development capabilities to address issues uh, of climate change. Uh, so that, uh, you know, at any one time, we are able to use the right levers to intervene. But do the governments have an obligation? Absolutely, yes. Uh, they have to provide the incentives for investment because when you're going greener, it, it escalates the cost to some, uh, to some level. But at the end of the day, you look at it as an investment for the greater good. So government has to provide some level of incentive and supportive interventions, especially for those who are bringing on board technology that is going to address some of these um, emissions eradication. So, um, yes, as Uganda, we've put in place so many things right from exploration. We saw a lot of interventions being made to protect the environment from policy level issues of uh, environmental considerations have been put in place, but we still need to do more. There's no question about that because at the end of the day, an emission in Uganda is an emission. Is a global emission.
0: Fantastic. I think we're we, we're kind of clearly in uh, in conference season now, and I think you know obviously we have COP twenty seven coming up in Egypt in uh, in in sort of mid November. COP twenty eight is going to be in the in the UAE uh, next year, and and you know obviously we're kind of moving to obviously also towards uh, towards Adepec. What do you think? Something like ADPEC is going to show us about how things are changing. Proscovia, I'm going to stick with you.
1: I think for me, ADPEC is a very fantastic platform to bring. You know, all energy producers, policymakers, regulators into uh, one umbrella to have a conversation uh, on issues related to uh, climate change. I think for me, what I would anticipate at COP28 is that platform where all these producers, policymakers, and regulators have a dialogue. I remember a couple of years ago, I was asked if. What I would wish to see the, the producers of oil and gas and the other people who are investing in other greener technologies do five years down the road. But I think my response then was how I wish to see all the different producers on one table looking for solutions rather than isolating themselves to get rid of one or the other. How I would wish COP28 would bring the different ecosystem of energy producers, whether oil and gas, whether solar, whether wind, we have to sit together to look for solutions. We can't shy away from the fact that we we are still dependent on the different forms of energy. And um, you see, it's always difficult to create a solution when some key players are missing on the table. This is what we've seen in some of the previous um, meetings at COP. So if we have a missing piece on the table, it's going to always be difficult to come up with a more reasonable solution. So let's have everyone on the table. Let's have a conversation about how to make things better. And I believe the solution sits with us uh, being together rather than, you know, having fights between different energy producers. So I look forward certainly to COP28, and uh, I believe um, it would also be granular enough to recognize uh, that, you know, the reference points will look different for the energy transition uh, conversation. And I hope it could be addressed that actually the different continents may need to tackle issues of energy transition in a different way. But you know, looking at the same uh, same goal of reducing the emissions, but not curbing development.
0: Fantastic. And and Manfredi, what are your what are your thoughts about uh, Adaptec? Any any particular hopes that you've got? Yes, I mean, I, I share Proskovia's
2: uh, hope of 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 this being a productive, you know, of ADIPEC being a productive meeting and really facilitating conversation across the the, the different the different system, uh, the different part of the system. So, policymaker. Uh, civil society organizations obviously the industry and, uh, and 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 international organizations to the extent in which we can we can be helpful to this discussion it specifically and, and I'm gonna, I'm going to I'm going to go back to the issue of methane but specifically I think uh, ADIPEC has an opportunity this year uh, to really advance this discussion on methane emission reductions from the oil and gas industry uh, as a as a very short term action that the industry can take to uh, to really show practically its interest in being part of the solution to the climate change problem, and not obviously uh, only part of part of the problem to it. IMEO, the UNAP's uh, International Methane Emissions Observatory will be presenting its second annual report at, at ADIPEC on uh, on October thirty first. Uh, and as part of this, we're going to show the, the the efforts and the and the progresses that have been made by the uh, almost ninety. Oil and gas companies that are part of the, uh, the oil and gas methane partnership two point that is the meet-time uh, transparency scheme that uh, that UNAP has uh, has created together with uh, with the industry representative NGOs and, and, and other organizations such as the Climate and Cleaner Coalition and uh, under which companies have committed to increase the granularity the granularity and accuracy of their emissions reporting uh, in a way that is linked to action because allows uh, those with agencies or the asset managers to understand, to have a more intimate understanding of where the emissions come from and then be able to, uh, to reduce them, to put forward plans to, to reduce them. Uh, again, I, I, I certainly share the, the, the hope that Proskovia has uh, expressed earlier that, that this can be a first step with COP27 so that ADIPEC can be a first step together with COP27 and COP28 to really make progress uh, on this front. Uh, I think it is encouraging to see uh, so many companies from around the world, the combination of IOC, NOCs, uh, independent companies, uh, taking action on, on methane in a way that is credible uh, and so based on measurements and based on a comprehensive uh, methodology that, that was co-developed between the industry and, and other stakeholders. And, but we need to make sure that this action accelerates and widen uh, in scope and, and I very much look forward to, to discussing with Proskovia at, at Adipak on how the, the Uganda National Oil Company can can participate in the work of the Oil and Gas Medium Partnership 2.0 and uh, any other company that, that is interested in, uh, in understanding how practically they can uh, support climate action in the short term while thinking and planning for this longer-term transition
0: that are Proscovia and Mervredi, thank you so much for uh, sharing these uh, really interesting and insightful thoughts. And I, I hope you're looking forward to Adepec uh, which is coming up fast. So thank you also to our listeners. Uh, please let us know what you think about the ideas we've raised here. You can add email outloud@energyvoice.com. at energyvoice.com. And, and if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email loud at energyvoice.com too. If you're coming to Adepec, let us know what you think. And I hope to see as many of you as possible in Abu Dhabi. But for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening.
1: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com